Hey everyone! So this week's episode is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. Just a little bit. I know we one of the things we always talk about is all of our murder mini episodes we have on Patreon. And we've had a few people asking like, you know, what what all is a murder mini? What's how is that different from an episode? You know, kind of what is it? And I mean, really, essentially what they are are mini episodes for our Patreon listeners. And so we were like, you know what? This is our favorite, favorite murder mini we've ever done. We actually didn't even call it a murder mini. We called it like a murder not so many or murder maxi or something. (laughs) Murder not so many. But for today's episode, we wanted to show y'all kind of what that's like. So the structure will be a little bit different, i.e. there's not like a topic. It's just two real big cases. Real big cases that don't really have any connections except for the fact that they're horrifying. And also, just as a reminder, we have our Q&A coming up, our Patreon Q&A, this Thursday, October 1st at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you're in the U.S., uh, use a time converter if you're not. I, I don't know your time zone. But if you want to chill with us, have some wine, ask us questions, check out our Patreon, join us, and then join us on Thursday. And also, this is Blood and Wine. (laughs) I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And with that, let's just hop right into this murder mini. Hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everyone. Hello, hello, Patreoners. Welcome to our... I y'all yet. I know. Welcome to our murder mini. Yes, our murder not so many. Murder not so many. You guys, this Which is Which we feel very be... clever about that name, so we're going to use it a lot. Absolutely. We Ooh, both yeah. picked some very well-known, pretty big cases. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I think that to celebrate this, we got a... Um, I don't know, one of Brittany's favorite bottles of wine. This is one of my absolute favorites. It wasn't really intentional. I just was at the grocery store today, (laughs) and I was straight up about to, like, I don't know, run over entire families with my cart. Cart, not car. Because, (laughs) y'all, I don't know what it is, but I swear people that go grocery shopping right after work are like, you know what? I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to go slow. They've had a long, hard day. Yeah, me too. And you know what I want to do after a long, hard get, day is not be in the grocery store. Uh, I never <laughs> want to be in the grocery store, so especially our grocery store. <laughs> to the point of, I got wine, pizza rolls, and cat food. I yeah, I looked very <laughs> single. Um, um, hey, but I had a That's what I look basket. like all the time. Don't don't hate too much. I mean, you know, whatever. It's, but no, <laughs> but I had a handbasket because I was not about to have to deal with a big one having to navigate it through people. No. So that's probably the only reason I didn't run people over is because Fair. it would have just been me swinging a basket at them like a medieval You could have like knocked some kids down pretty well though. I was about to. There was this child who was playing with one of those like a... Uh, like beach ball bouncy balls it's like a foot across oh yeah and just kept bouncing it and it like bumped me a couple times and i almost swung that card around being like bitch stay out of my way but i didn't because i'm a good person you're gonna be such a great parent one day i know because i don't do things like that (laughs) it's okay i think everyone thinks to do stuff like that or maybe they don't but sometimes you're like you're so annoyed by someone that you want to just like hit them but you don't yeah. because well, and i can be arrested for that just, now and that's a good thing <laughs> i also just hate going to the grocery store especially when it's crowded but of course 
whenever you need something is always when every single other person on planet Earth also has decided they need something. <laughs> it's never uh, it's never like 11 at night and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need this. Run to the grocery store. No. It's always like, it's 6 p.m. on a weekday. I need to run to the grocery store and cry. Rye. By the way, thank you for getting cat food. You're welcome. Because <laughs> that was also for me. Yeah. I mean, for my cat, not for me. Bernie's <laughs> <laughs> on this fun new diet. No, but anyway, so the wine that I almost went to jail to get is a J-Lore Cab. Yes. And I think I've had it. I'm sure I've had it. I've probably bought the J-Lore Cab just as much as I've bought the Seven Deadly Zins. Like, it okay. is up there. So, do you want to pour it? We're using his fancy decanter, which we haven't used. I wonder what this will sound like. Ah, who knows? It's kind of hard to... Sounds like pouring wine. It does. Um, I'm also, always terrified. Also, it seems like it's kind of hard to pour. That's. I mean, oh god, it is. <laughs> and if I knock over any of these glasses, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Especially if you spill the wine. Oh god, it's like glugging out. Alright, cheers. Cheers. Oh, we need this. Oh, mm. so good. You guys, this is one of my absolute favorites. It is. It's good. I could never tell if decanters like really change wine taste. I don't. I don't know. I don't think I have an evolved enough palate, which at this point we, we have had, what, 80 bottles just from the podcast. Basically. Makes us. It's fine. Um, And that's just on the podcast. So let's really not start to think about that. It's whatever. Yeah. No. Sometimes I think I'm like, well, how much wine do I, how many bottles do I go through in a year? And I just cry. (laughs) I've never wanted to calculate that number and I never will. But but, I mean, yes, we've had more wines that our palates are, they've changed a lot. We've tried a lot of wines, especially you. Do you remember when we first started one of our first episodes we did the trader joe's like coastal cab yeah i think that was was our very first episode five dollar bottle one of trader joe's cheaper yeah yeah and i remember being like oh this is good and still not to say it's five bucks it is and it it's good in general like it's but i i remember my go-to wine before the podcast really was two buck chuck like just the charles shaw two dollar stuff and now i'm like hmm no i get it yeah I yeah. hate that I get it. It would be great if my go-to was $2, $3 in Texas, but... Yes, they did raise the prices. Three-buck chuck still works. I mean, any number works. Ten-buck so, chuck. Ten-buck chuck. $75 chuck. Ooh, no. 75-buck chuck. 20-buck chuck. <laughs> that actually sounds good. Please don't do that, Trader Joe's. Please don't. Please don't make it 20-buck chuck. 20-buck chuck. That... Would be a cool, like, just, that's what you call your wine, as in, like, that's the actual name of the wine. Ooh, you know what they chuck. should do? They but should release... But it's like release... a Texas wine made in the forest. Okay, if you'll let me talk. Oh, um, no, they should release for their anniversary special, a special, like, reserve wine, and we call it, like, 20 chuck. Buck Chuck. Let's write I'm them just email. saying, TJ's. Do it. My God, we'll go back to the beginning and beg them for sponsorship. <laughs> We, oh, we yeah. used to do. When we would say in every episode, Trader Joe's hit us up, which still, if y'all are interested, we are too. We're open. Okay. Anyways. Have yes. our wine. Trader Joe's isn't listening to us right now. They're not Patreon supporters yet. Yet. Oh, that would be weird. Anyway. I would continue. love it. So, we have our wine. You ready for me to hop into my murder not so many? Mm-hmm. Okay. I did Lacey Peterson. There we go. So, very not many. 
I used a few sources, Wikipedia, ThoughtCo, Rolling Stone, and the Modesto Bee, um, because this happened in Modesto, California. Okay. A bit of a quick intro. I'm just going to very much cut to the chase. Lady C. Peterson went missing on Christmas Eve in 2002. She was eight months pregnant at the time Mm -hmm. with a son, and they'd already named him. His name was Connor. Throughout early 2003, her disappearance dominated the TV news right alongside, like, Saddam Hussein. Like, there was a lot going on, but Lacey was everywhere. Yeah. And it, you know, there was this cast of characters. They were plastered all over tabloid magazines for years. So, this also included Lacey's handsome husband, Scott Peterson. See, yeah, okay. His mistress. Oh, And a gaggle of celebrity lawyers. So this cast of characters is full of everything you can imagine. Okay. Um, And this very tangled drama proved that Americans had an appetite for true crime because of how it was everywhere. Already, I'm like, why is this not the next season of American Crime Story? Because it's going to be the seventh. Just kidding. I don't know. I was like, (laughs) really? Yeah. So, Lacey Denise Rocha was born in Modesto, California on May 4th, 1975. She attended California Polytechnic State University, Mm -hmm. where she majored in ornamental horticulture. Okay. While she was there, she met Scott Peterson at a small restaurant called Pacific Cafe in Morro Bay, which is where he worked. Yeah. Lacey, in this situation, made the first move. You go, girl. Except... She shouldn't have made any move at all. Yeah. She sent him her phone number, and immediately after meeting him, she told her mom that she had met the man she was going to marry. Oh. Which I feel like is something that's always said, and I'm like... How many pe- times have you just, said that before? Do people just say that all the time, hoping that one time it sticks? I don't know. No, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, I have definitely jokingly been like, oh my gosh, that's my future husband right there. Or yeah, something. But that's different than calling mama and being like, I met someone. I met the future husband. <laughs> I met the future father of my children. And she'll be like, Which That was dark oh. if you know anything about this case. So, Scott. I, fun fact I don't really, other than like. Tyler, the, I think that you have blown your cover on the fact that you have a true crime podcast, yet actually don't know about a lot of very popular cases. Oh, I not only have a true crime podcast, <laughs> I also was a criminology major in college. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened? I mean, it, yeah. yeah. So it's okay. Our listeners know, and they love you anyway. Thank you. <laughs> I needed that. So... Scott calls her, they start dating, and for their very first date, they went deep sea fishing, and Lacey got seasick. So That sounds like an adorable <laughs> date. Yeah, it really does. Scott was a fisherman. Their relationship grew more serious, and he set aside his dreams of being a professional golfer because mm. he wanted to build a life for the two of them. They dated for two years, and they eventually moved in together. And they got married on August 9th. 1997, and they opened a sports bar in San Luis Obispo called The Shack. Business was initially pretty slow, but it eventually got better, especially on the weekends. Okay. And they sold it in 2000 when they moved to Lacey's hometown of Modesto to start a family. Okay. Where is Modesto? Um, It's in Central Valley, outside of uh, Sacramento. Okay, okay, okay. Lacey worked very enthusiastically at being the perfect housewife. She really liked cooking, entertaining, Mm -hmm. and that she was pregnant. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it was exactly where she was wanting to be in yeah. her life. Apart from her husband, Scott, there were two people known to have spoken to Lacey before she disappeared. One was her half-sister, Amy Rocha, and the other was her mom, Sharon. On December 23, 2002, at around 5.45 p.m., Lacey and Scott went to Amy's workplace. She worked at a salon, and she always cut Scott's hair every month. Yeah. And as they spoke, Amy was saying Scott offered to go pick up a fruit basket that Amy had ordered for her grandfather as a Christmas gift the next day, because he would be playing golf at a course nearby wherever he was picking that up. And yeah. He also told other people that he'd be playing golf um, the day of Christmas Eve. So like I had mentioned earlier, he was a golfer. Like this is yeah. just something he always did. Later that evening, Sharon, Lacey's mom, spoke to Lacey on the telephone at about 8.30. Mm-hmm. Scott later told police that he last saw Lacey at around 9.30 a.m. on Christmas Eve when he left to go fishing in the Berkeley Marina. He said Lacey was watching a cooking television show and was preparing to mop the floor, bake cookies, you know, walk the Do dog. Do Christmas Do Christmas Eve stuff, things. like yeah. prepping for the holiday. So he's going fishing, not golfing? Yes. Interesting. Later that morning, one of their neighbors said she found their dog, Mackenzie, who was a golden retriever, mm-hmm. walking around, like, still with its leash, and so she returned the dog. Yeah. About a half hour later, at about 1045, another neighbor named Mike said he found the dog again, wandering in the neighborhood, like, covered in mud, with the leash, and returned him to the backyard. Scott said he got home that afternoon. He found the house empty. Mackenzie was in the backyard. And Lacey's 1996 Land Rover was in the driveway. He showered, washed his clothes. And, you know, because he was wet from fishing, he probably smelled like bait and whatnot. So he just assumed that Lacey was, you know, gone to her mom's house. Or her mom picked her up, her sister picked her up. Just, you know, that she was with family. Yeah. But when Lacey had not returned by 5.15 that night, Scott called his mother-in-law... And then a half hour later, Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, called the police because Lacey wasn't there. Oh, so he calls Lacey's mom like, hey, do you know when Lacey's going to be home? Like, just wanted to see. And she's like, uh. Like, uh, Lacey's she's not, not here. here. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. So after police arrive at the Peterson home, Lacey's keys, wallets, and sunglasses were found in her purse, which was in a closet. The dining room table was set, and a detective found a phone book on the kitchen counter that was open to a full-page ad for a defense lawyer, which is really weird. Scott reportedly was completely calm throughout the time that the police were in his home. Well, I I mean, I can understand that, especially if he's, like, convinced himself, like, oh, she'll be be home. This is fine. This is overkill. You know, maybe her parents just do this, but... I was like, you know, I get it, but she'll she'll be fine. She's she'll be home. Yeah, Modesto Police Detective John Bueller and Alan Brocchini. And apologies if I didn't say those right. I admittedly did not watch a video to learn how to pronounce them. But they were the lead Fire. investigators on the case, and they questioned Scott that evening. Yeah, Scott initially said he'd spent the day golfing. He later told the police that he'd gone to fish at the Berkeley Marina, and that was about ninety miles from their home. Okay, wow, that is a far drive to fish, but also... Well, you saw where I told you where it was. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he had yeah. to go where there was water. No, and that's fair, and I get that. It's interesting that he also is flipping, flopping the story. Like, you, yes. did you golf or did you fish? Like, Yeah, exactly. You only did one. At 2.15, he said he called Lacey and left her a message saying, Hey, beautiful, it's 2.15, I'm leaving Berkeley. 
Detectives immediately launched a search, and but they were surprised that, at Scott's behavior. Bueller said, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a bit thrown by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? They said Scott exhibited strange behaviors, such as he couldn't remember what kind of bait he'd used that morning when he supposedly went fishing, or he prioritized some really weird things during the investigation. His concerns were not lacy. They were his car door hitting another car door in the driveway, pictures being taken of his boat in his shop, or getting a receipt for the pink slipper and sunglasses that the tracking dog people used for Lacey's scent, like to make sure he'd get those back. What? And he also refused to take a polygraph test. Um. So he is acting a bit odd. So we brought it up before that you can't judge someone by how they grieve. Right. Like you can't judge someone's guilt by, oh, they're not sad enough, they're not angry enough, they're not doing this enough, well, or they're doing this too much. And that's not fair to someone to tell them they're not grieving properly. No, because for all you know, so far at least, is he is just in a complete and utter state of shock. Yeah. And I mean, you, I wouldn't know proper way. I mean, it, there, there is no proper, is no way, proper way to way. grieve. You know, some or people to be in shock or to it, handle a situation. Exactly. No. So, so far, I, I get it that it's suspicious. I mean, his pregnant wife is missing, well, and, and you he seems, always assume well, I mean, the one oh, closest yeah. to them. Like, oh yeah. You rule. You. I mean, if you investigate I them went and missing, rule them out. I would assume you would probably be on the top of the list of. Suspects, maybe. Especially with the podcast we do. I would absolutely be the top of that list. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> or but vice versa. Inter- internet history, they're like, um, yeah, we're going to take you. And I'd be like, I can explain that. Look, I promise you. No, literally, if anyone close to us is ever found dead. If you are going to arrest me and like tweet it out that I've been arrested, can you also mention Blood Mine, a true crime podcast? And like just link our Twitter handle and, and whatever. Just like tag us in that. That'd be great. Like, thank you. So a search of the park and the surrounding area immediately ensued. And police, family members, friends, neighbors, they searched on foot using ATVs, patrol cars, SUVs, helicopters, so they could look, you know, in the the woods, heat sensors, water rescue units, search dogs, and horseback teams. So literally, I've never heard of a horseback team doing a search. No, I feel like the horses would step on things and just Run generally evidence. be evil. Well, that's because you don't like horses. I, it's because horses are evil. But But anyway, they're trying absolutely everything. This is already starting to pick up media attention when she's missing. Uh, yeah. And I think I read there were like 900 some volunteers that were trying to help, oh like sending out flyers. I've never volunteered for a search. Sorry, that continue. Yes, I've also never done that, but I've never I've never known been of asked. an opportunity. I don't um, know no if one's it's ever something asked me. I don't know if it's something you're really ever asked to do unless you are watching the notified. No, I think you just know about it and you just go. Like, it's on the news. And they probably say the line of, like, if anyone has any information or if anyone wants to help, the family's here. Like, when the family does a press conference, I'm sure. I mean, okay, that's... Okay. So, um, police did suspect foul play. They seriously doubted that she would vanish on Christmas Eve without contacting anyone. I mean, And so, there had to be something. On December 31st, 2002, the town of Modesto had a public vigil for Lacey and Connor. Scott declined to speak at the vigil, but he did go. He was there. Yeah. 
And photographers captured him in two pretty damning photographs that night that haunted him like through the trial that he's eventually going to go through. In one of the pictures, Scott bends down alongside his niece to set down a candle and he's got this huge smile across his face. In the second picture, he's standing with some people and he's laughing. So, I mean, this behavior at the vigil for his missing wife and his unborn child, I mean, that looks pretty bad. That does. That does. With just these big smiles, like, happy. He looks happy. Yeah, he looks way too happy there. He's just jovial. It's not like a... He was caught, like, in the one when he's with his niece, I could see maybe trying to, like, yeah, pretend be, to be happy. Be, be but... ha- smile, be, you know, because, I don't know, she's a little kid, and maybe yeah. you're... But that other picture, out. he's just, like, jovial. Yeah. Jovial's a good word for it. Yeah. I'm it... glad you used it twice. <laughs> you're welcome. I liked it. So, Clearly. it was later revealed that Scott had numerous extramarital affairs, and that there was one that Lacey did know about. So back in November of 2002, when Lacey was seven months pregnant, Scott was was introduced by a friend to a Fresno massage therapist named Amber Frey. Oh, I know that name. mm -hmm, If you looked up her picture, you would recognize her. Frey said Scott told her he was single and the two of them began a romantic relationship. So after about a month-long whirlwind romance, on December 30th, 2002... She informed police of their relationship after discovering he was a person of interest in Lacey's disappearance. Mm-hmm. She saw it on the local news. She agreed to... God, fun- we would be shit at this because neither of us watch the news or have cable. I know, right? <laughs> but you can get news with an antenna, which we both have. I And yet we don't watch. Amber agreed to call Scott while the police recorded their conversation. So in all, she ended up doing uh, recordings of over 29 hours of phone calls with Scott. Whoa. And she informed police that he told her on December 9th, two weeks before Lacey's disappearance, that he was a widower and it would be his first Christmas alone without his wife. Oh, I don't like that. Police later wondered if Scott's admission to Amber of a dead wife was tantamount to confessing to a premeditated murder. I mean, okay, no. It's a stretch. That, that is a stretch. It's a stretch. I'm going to have to disagree with that. Neither Scott, the Petersons, so his family, or the Rochas, Lacey's family, knew the police were aware of Scott's affair or that Amber was recording their phone calls. So no one knew that except Ooh, so Amber's Amber and the police. Like going undercover. She is. However, in mid-January 2003, police learned that the National Enquirer had a photo of Amber and Scott and they were going to publish it. So on January 24th, Amber revealed herself in a press conference as his mistress, confessed that they had a relationship and that he told her he was single. And of course, she's doing this and she's visibly shaken. You know, she... Yeah. She sounds like just a badass she is and she is someone who was completely duped thought she was with this you know attractive man who'd lost his wife and you know they had a great like fun relationship but Mm -hmm. once she found out shit was going down she did what she needed to do to you know help the police with this investigation whether you know she didn't know what was going on if he did it or not but it was suspicious yeah from that moment forward, the Rocha family turned their back on their son-in-law. I, and, yeah. And so too did a lot of the volunteers who had been looking for Lacey. Yeah. Which, I can see both sides. I mean, yeah, he's a trash dude who had an affair on his pregnant wife. 
But he's still lost. His, his pregnant wife is missing. Well, the public hated him. The media hated him. They were immediately implicating him of, of being guilty and, like, Scott did oh. it. Like, where's Lacey? Let's ask Scott. Like, they hated him. Nancy Grace was actually... Okay, Nancy a, Grace hates a lot of people. She does, but she was a big proponent in a lot of the media sensation around this trial. And... That doesn't surprise me. So no, I, it doesn't surprise me either. Like, I... I think we've mentioned Nancy Grace I think, once before. We've mentioned her a couple um, times, I think. I don't like her style of reporting. I don't either. Verdict is handed down. He's guilty. He did this before it's very all the evidence is in. Accusatory. Yes. That yes, that is yes. Yeah. On the flip side, she does give a lot of visibility to a lot of these cases. She does. So you know that is a benefit, but but is it a benefit if the visibility is so biased? Although, I mean, I say that most media covering the oh, type of case yeah. is biased. Yeah, I mean, you you said before that already, like the town, the media, everyone had turned against him. Yep. So on April thirteenth, two thousand three, a couple walking their dog discovered a decomposing but oh. well preserved body of a late term male fetus on the shore of Isabel Regional Shoreline Park, which was north of Berkeley. Mm. The baby. Loops of nylon tape were found around the fetus's neck, and a significant cut was on the fetus's body. I'm about to oh, uh just warning for those who are listening. This is about to get really graphic, and it, it was just, if you want to skip it, skip about 30 seconds ahead. So, about a day later, the body of a recently pregnant woman wearing cream-colored maternity pants and a maternity bra washed to the shore one mile away from where the baby's body was found. The exact cause of her death was impossible to determine because of the level of decomposition of her body, but it was, her body was decapitated. Both forearms were missing, the right foot was severed, and the left leg from the knee down was missing. So it was essentially just a a woman's torso that was found. Tape was around the outside of her clothing and on her lower lower torso. Later reports from the medical examiner revealed that there were injuries. Two cracked ribs that happened at or near the time of her death. Mm -hmm. And DNA tests verified that they were the bodies of Lacey Peterson and her son Connor. So... The fetus, Connor, he had tape around him specifically. So this this part gets a little... There's a lot of different uh, scenarios. It was determined that the mother and the fetus had not been separated by coffin birth. And okay. coffin birth is when a mom has her baby post-mortem. Yeah. And it's because of the gases that build up in your body when you're decomposing press the fetus out. Okay. They determined that that was not the case because her vagina did not show any signs of birth. Okay. So her upper torso had been emptied of its internal organs during decomposition, and that allowed the fetus to pass through some type of perforation in the top of her decomposing uterus. Yeah. Um, He only spent a small amount of time outside the uterus. Oh, because he wasn't super, he was more preserved than would be expected. Yes, exactly. And so that goes to show that, and when he was found, he was out of the uterus, but it goes to show that he was potentially protected within it. So I I say all that to say there are a lot of 
I mean, this was what was presented at trial, but there's tape around his neck, and it didn't look like it was something that just got caught around his neck being in the water. Yeah, well, my... It seemed placed, so there are some rumors, I don't know the right word, but um, potential theories that maybe the baby was born via cesarean before the death. Well, that, that is what it sounded like. That, that was the image I had at first because he had tape around his neck was this, like, cut him out of her and yeah. killed them both. I don't, but, I don't know. But, I mean, unfortunately, because, again, of the level of decomp, there's no way to really tell. Yeah. They just know that she did not have the child vaginally. Okay. But there is no way to determine yeah. if the child was born before death. Yeah, but I would imagine if, have to imagine that if, a if if someone had a fetus cut out of them, you would see knife nicks on the lower rib cage, the pelvis. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. I I would imagine yeah. you would be able to like see on something bone. on the skeleton or on the yeah. remaining soft tissue. There was also a bit that I read that the umbilical cord appeared to have been torn. It was definitely not cut, which lends more to the um, the fetus just coming out of her body during decomp and like yeah. tearing away. Lacey's head has never been found, like the rest of her body. It's just her torso. Uh. And at the time of her death, Lacey was only 27 years old. On April 18th, 2003, Scott was arrested near a La Jolla golf course. Mm-hmm. He claimed to be meeting his father and brother for a game of golf. He had dyed his naturally brown hair blonde, grown a beard, and his Mercedes was overstuffed with miscellaneous items, including nearly $15,000 in cash, 12 Viagra tablets, survival gear, camping equipment, several changes of clothes, four cell phones, and two driver's license. One was his, one was his brother's. His um, fuck, dude? His dad, Lee, explained that Scott had used his brother's license the day before to get a San Diego resident discount at the golf course and that he'd been living out of his car because media attention was crazy. You know, when I'm living out of a place, I make sure to have four cell phones, (laughs) $15,000 in cash. You know, because that's just not enough to get a motel. Uh, I would rather sleep in my Mercedes with all my shit, and, you know, you've absolutely got to dye your hair blonde and grow a beard. Yeah. I mean, it was the early 2000s, so there is that for the to explain the blonde, but... It's true. It was what everyone was doing. The rest of it's suspicious as fuck. <laughs> Police and prosecutors, they saw this as an indication that Scott was planning to flee to Mexico because he was very close to it, where he was on that golf course with his family. Uh, yeah. Or in the supposed area. Or, I mean, I guess if he's in San Diego, I mean, that's about as close to Mexico as close to Mexico as you can get. Yeah, it's true. So, Scott's trial began on June 1st, 2004. Mm-hmm. So, it took them a little over a year to build the case, gather evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, however, one thing to note, there was no direct evidence that connected Scott to the murders of Lacey and Connor. It was all mostly circumstantial. That's um, true. One, you know, a few pieces of evidence that the prosecution did present. There was one of Lacey's hairs found on a pair of pliers in Scott's boat, which could show that Lacey was there and that the pliers were used, or that it could have fallen off of an article of Scott's clothing, such as his jacket, because yeah. he lived with her, well, and, and also, onto the pliers, and that Lacey was never even on the boat. It also could mean that, I mean, it's his boat, so sure, she's been on it, but it's been a while. Like, 
You yeah. Know, yeah, they went out. They went boating last summer. It's extremely circumstantial. Yeah, because I don't know about she that. She was his wife. Yeah. Scott had also potentially made some homemade concrete anchors that they said could have been used to weigh down Lacey's body. However, when he did purchase his boat, he didn't have an anchor, so maybe he just needed an anchor. Um, and he filled, you know, a pitcher with the concrete he had as anchors. But her body being tied on the legs, arms, and neck to concrete anchors and then it being torn away from it could explain the, you know, her severed body parts. It could. I mean, it, so, it could. It, but again, by def, by nature, that's circumstantial. Yeah. And as far as I know, the concrete anchors were never found. Another piece of circumstantial evidence, Lacey and Connor's remains were found less than a mile apart along the eastern shore of San Francisco Bay. And both of these spots were less than two miles from where Scott City fished that day when she was reported missing. So he did kind of put himself in that area. However, it had been months, current, tides, who knows? Yeah. So, And I'm I'm just saying this to say how this evidence is circumstantial. Yeah. Because the defense argued against every single one of these. They had a reason like, oh, yeah, well, it could have been this. Yeah. That's the whole basis for, you know, what makes something circumstantial is if it can easily be explained by another scenario. Yeah, if there is another circumstance that is equally as plausible. However, on November 12th, 2004, Scott Peterson was convicted of first-degree murder for his wife's death and second-degree murder for Connor's death. Mm -hmm. Judge Alfred A. DeLucci sentenced Scott to death, calling his murder of Lacey cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous. The jurors later were interviewed and they pointed out what their deciding factors were to giving him, uh, you know, for the guilty verdict and recommending the death penalty. Yeah. The bodies of Lacey and their unborn child washed up close to where Peterson said he went fishing on the day that he was reported missing. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was a proven liar and the fact that he showed no remorse for the loss of Lacey and their unborn child, including continuing his romantic conversations with his girlfriend, Amber Frey. Those... Were there reasons finding him guilty and recommending the death sentence? I think he's guilty. I do too. I, I think don't he's think guilty. that is enough evidence, though. No. If I were on that jury making that decision, I don't think I could. Even if I don't believe in death penalty, so let's just in this no, scenario no. that's off the table that's and it's table. life in prison. I don't think I could comfortably say guilty. No, because there's I see reasonable doubt. Yeah. And because if we're looking at it all... beyond a shadow of a doubt to put someone away in jail forever or to give them the death penalty, I can't I, know. I, I, I can't say that, yes, he's guilty. I would have to... Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I wasn't there, so the evidence could have been presented in a different way. Of course, or, of course. And I know, didn't present trial transcripts or anything. I mean, yeah. But, you know, this really does beg the question that, you know, should someone be able to be convicted to death on circumstantial evidence alone? You I know? mean... And is that something that... The precedent of... I mean, before DNA, yes, there was... There was still obviously concrete evidence, but a lot more of the evidence was circumstantial, and that was just kind of how you had to do trials. So it's the precedent for the death, be you know, putting someone up for the death penalty based on circumstantial evidence. It's already there. It's always been there. It has. It's just with evolving technology and evolving things, how much stricter should we make it? Obviously, I'm of the opinion we should just get rid of the death penalty because of things like this. Right. Margin of error is too high, but. Oh, God. Well, and the fact that 
there have been multiple people found not guilty because the evidence was only circumstantial. Yeah. Or people that couldn't be taken to trial because the evidence was only circumstantial. Now, granted, I get that there's yeah. a level of circumstantial where yeah. it's like purely circumstantial and some that's yes. like this is circumstantial yet it really but it's points pointing to this to person. You. Which and yeah. that's I will say that's what a lot of at least where the bodies were found, yeah. like the concrete anchors, the hair kind of but But to me if you can reasonably imagine a different suspect, well what if Lacey was, you know, decided to go- walk to the store and was kidnapped mm-hmm. and murdered and the reason that 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 her killer's dna isn't on hers because she was in the water for so long like how reasonable is it to say that someone other than scott did this and from just from what i've heard Mm -hmm. it is way reasonable to think that he didn't do it yeah well and then also when it comes to him not being remorseful at all throughout this whole process like yeah, that looks really suspicious, but, you know... He could have just been an, an, an asshole. antisocial asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Scott has... He's found... Antisocial in the antisocial personality disorder. Not in the I don't like to talk to people kind of way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been that. But, hey. But... Yeah. No, I... It's just... It's one of those things that, like... And I definitely feel like he's guilty. But also, that may be just everything I've heard. Because everything you read about it says he is. Yeah. And so... I, that's why I wanted to bring up what actual evidence was there against him in his trial. Yeah. Because I think that's very important. And a lot of the times you ask me or you make the comment of like, oh, well, I'm still trying to wait on the evidence. And I literally had your voice in my head when I was doing my research uh, because sorry. I, I I had to dig for it, which again shows not, how it was super yeah. circumstantial. But it also shows how the evidence that's presented in all of the stories telling it since then doesn't focus on the evidence it focuses on the affair and the fact that he didn't you know he was an asshole and didn't care and stuff and i'm like i understand how damning that can seem but that's not evidence it's not that's evidence that he's an asshole Mm -hmm. lots of people are assholes most people are assholes. Maybe not most people, but a lot of people, a lot are, of people assholes. are assholes. So Scott filed two appeals, one mm-hmm. in 2012 for the murder charge and one in 2015 alleging unlawful detention. Both of these are still pending. Mm-hmm. He asked for a new trial, but in August 2017, the California Attorney General rebuked the request for a new trial in a 150-page document that said there That's is really overwhelming long. evidence for Scott Peterson's guilt, and he's currently still sitting on death row. It would be interesting to read that document and see what they consider as overwhelming evidence, because I, I know, don't doubt I, the evidence is there. I know. I feel like there is something that, again, because I didn't look at trial transcripts or anything there there has to be i I would hope to god there are other things that were presented and that the media was more focused on the story because again you know when a reporter is writing something ultimately it's they're trying to tell a really good story they want it Mm -hmm. to be read and we've talked about yeah you want to share the information share what's going on but to get people to do that you have to make it as flashy as possible and you have to tell the story of what's happening i can see focusing on the more archetypal elements right 
even though reporting should be fact reporting. But hey, that's aside the point. But this also goes along the same lines. We talked about this a few episodes ago, how trials seem now, who tells the better story, not what's the truth. Yeah. What is justice? It's It's who can the prosecution Mm -hmm. or the defense come up with a more convincing argument. Absolutely. And, I mean, you can very much take something to try if the story you weave is, is is believable. Well, and, like, there are even examples of trials that had physical evidence, like, hello, OJ. Mm-hmm. And going the other way. And going because absolutely the other way because of Storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, so, you're right. one good note in this horror tale is that the death of Lacey and her fetal son did lead to the United States Congress passing the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which is also known as the Lacey and Connor Law, which was signed by George W. Bush into law on April 1st, 2004. And the law recognizes unborn children as legal victims if injured or killed upon a listed crime of violence. Interesting. So, and this, I believe, was a state-by-state basis before because in california even before the passing of this law like it was i mean granted when scott was convicted this law had gone into effect but even when he was being charged in the murders and because of california's laws you know the fetus was considered like for the victim yeah well which i can get especially because yeah her son connor he had a name well and i mean i kind of figured i mean because she was eight months along yeah but and it if you know, she was in a fatal car accident. You know, at this point, Connor could have been saved. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's obviously a lot more information out there about this case. Scott, again, is still there on death row. And when I found the, you know, the report of her, when her body was discovered, that was extremely gruesome yeah and because when it when it was detailing the level of decomp and you made the comment of oh if she did have the four anchors maybe that's why it separated like Mm -hmm. that's just absolutely horrifying yeah to think about and in the way so we've talked about bodies that were found you know outside in the heat and how decomposition can be very quick yeah but when a body is found in the water, that's just another level of, you know, another element that can really quicken the level. Oh, the, yeah. The I, I mean, I would say underwater, a uh, body faster? would, yeah, decompose yeah. faster than exposed to humidity or heat or sunlight or dry yeah. kinds of decomp. I would, dry I would the think well, water would be much quicker, especially when you have, I mean, the different sea creatures, you the, have the yeah, currents, the, the tides, the... Which adds in the movement, and there's not really the movement on the land unless it's by an animal. Yeah. So it just, yeah, anyway, reading all of that was gut-wrenching, horrifying, and I'm like, that was a person, that was a mom, that was a baby, I hate it. So anyway, that was my case. What horror story are you going to tell me? And do we need to get that second bottle? We do. So I wanted to talk about this second bottle of wine because it's different. We didn't do, do the J-Lore for the second bottle. Yeah, because we want to um, show you guys two bottles of wine. Yay! Um, this was the Chateau Saint-Michel. and Oh, we have Brittany, such a good story! I know. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons why I got it. So Aww. when I lived in Seattle, Chateau Saint-Michel is a vineyard that's in Woodenville, Washington, which is maybe a half hour outside of Seattle. Yeah. And 
when Brittany came to visit me when I lived there, that was the winery we went to. Mm-hmm. We had mm-hmm. a goal. We were like, we want to go to a Washington winery. Yeah. And Chateau St. Michel was the one that was highly rated. It was not too far. And it's one, what I love about it is like, it's a wine I can easily go find in the store. Yeah. See, and I love that. I didn't know that. Really? Really? Yeah. I've had that wine even before we went. Like, it's one mama buys. See, she loves I, Chateau St. Michel. See, I actually didn't know you could buy it in store. Oh, yeah. See, I, kn- I knew you had it, you'd had it prior to us going to the winery, but I thought it was just like a, oh, a special bottle you found. Ooh. I didn't know that it was like a, you could find it most places. Yeah. Well, also, shout out again to Chateau St. Michel. I had another of their wines when I was at home with Mama this weekend, and it was their Indian Wells cab. Yes. And that one, I mean, it was like a $17 bottle in Oklahoma. It was so good. Mm. And Mama was like, I guess I'll share my good wine with you. And I was like, thank you. Thanks, Mom. No, but we went toward the vineyard, told us all about all the wine we could ever want. Well, we learned so much about the region. Yeah. And and that was interesting, which was my favorite part. Yeah, but it's interesting because most Washington wines you find are going to be Eastern Washington wines. Yeah. Ones that are grown in Walla Walla, Yakima, the Columbia Valley, those kind of things. But Chateau St. Michel, the vineyard, the winery and the vineyard we went to was in yes. Puget Sound. Yeah, not and in they the mountains. Do, they do get a lot of grapes. That was stupid. Of course it was in the mountains, but whatever. I mean, continue. It was the other side of the mountains, the yes. rain side. And they do get a lot of their grapes from eastern Washington, where it's drier and more uh, the typical France, Italy, California climate. Yes, yes. But the, the, like, perfect they do have climate. a lot of of grapes growing in... France, Italy, California, Lubbock, Texas. Great you know, soil for wine. <laughs> you know, just where you, where you grow grapes. But anyway, um, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting that close to Seattle. I know. That was so... So much fun. And then yes. do you remember we went to that restaurant after and had like margaritas, which was a weird next step. But Oh, that I mean, restaurant that's in Woodenville that was Mexican food? Yeah, we were like, let's see if we can find some Mexican food. And it was fine. It was, it was like it was decent it was like El Mexican Chico. food. Yeah. Anyways, so my case is the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. Oh shit. You went like hardcore recent. Yeah. Like, So, the sources I used were Wikipedia, History, The Washington Post, and MSNBC News. Which, there's a ton of sources out there, y'all. Like, that, I only needed that many kind of thing. I can only imagine how many are out there with how recent this is. Uh, yeah. So, on October 1st of 2017... 22,000 people were enjoying a country music festival in Las Vegas, Nevada. This was a three-day-long music festival known as the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival, and it was being held just off the Las Vegas Strip across from the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino. Mm -hmm. And the Mandalay Bay is a 43-story tall tower that it it almost like frames the Las Vegas Strip. It is like seen as one of the entrances to Las Vegas. So the Mandalay Bay, if y'all have seen pictures, especially pictures from the Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign, yeah, the Mandalay, Mandalay Bay, Bay is the gold building in the foreground, yep. the gold tower. So one thing about this case, it hits way too close to home it is probably the closest 
I've ever been to personally to one of our cases. Yeah. I was actually in Las Vegas the weekend before this. Yeah. Uh, my Me and my friends were wanting to take a trip to Vegas, and we were all country music fans, and we were like, oh my god, they're having this big country festival. Jason Aldean's going to be there. All these artists we would love to see are going to be there. We should get tickets for that weekend. Unfortunately, the flights were a little more expensive. Hotel rooms were a little more expensive. So you say we, unfortunately. I say fortunately. Well, I mean, yes. But I'm, I get unfortunately your, your at mindset. the time. Yes. At the time, we were saying unfortunately. Yeah. Um, now we are not. Tickets were a little more expensive than we wanted. And because it would also include us taking off a Monday from work, we were like, well... You know, let's still go to Vegas. Let's just go the weekend before when it's more affordable. So anyway, we decided to go the weekend before and uh, um, to save a little bit of money. And so we, you know, weren't there. But <laughs> and like from my side of this, I'm sitting across from you right now, just horrified and floored and like and because every time you bring this up, it just I hate how close this was. And I remember you telling me this and it's just oh, this is bringing back really bad memories yeah i don't even have the yeah. words but well, I, I feel like our listeners can feel my emotions right now because they're just like spilling all over the mic but it's yeah well it's one of those that it's literally like it's really the first time that i can remember and be able to digest the like oh i was almost there yeah i.e we were looking at tickets to go there for that. Yep. And so so this this case, say, is a little bit closer to home. Yeah. Yep. So October 1st, the day this happened, was the last day that the Route 91 festival would ever be held. Oh, so, they canceled this completely? Yep. Doesn't happen anymore. I'm not surprised. Me neither. After something like that, no I, one would I ever don't know go. how you... People would, but I don't... Not... I don't know how to the you same level. Would. Probably not to make it profitable enough. Yeah. Also, it's more of a beyond profitability. Yeah. It's more of a statement of yeah. we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. No, I I agree. Well, and one thing this really reminds me of is the Manchester bombing, which was just a few months. It was in May of 2017, so just a few months before this. Yeah. At the Ariana Grande concert, yep. where a bunch of concert goers were killed because it. I don't know. There's something yeah. so freeing and innocent and youthful, regardless of your age, about a music festival that is just so pure joy. And I don't know. That is just, it's a lot. Well, and then there was also the incident in Paris at the concert in 2015. Yeah. I mean, this is something that there for a few years, I guess this couple of yeah. years, it had its spike and it was terrifying and i'm i'm mm-hmm. sure there are people out there that didn't go to big shows didn't go to well and the oh, one in I'm paris sure. i don't think was a big show it was just a show and well i mean any i don't know any time there's a crowd of twenty thousand or fifty thousand people in one area i mean personally especially since then i think about that i do too it's something that unfortunately could always happen I know, and what freaks me out the most is I feel like we have amped up security, yet still not enough. Well, so much of it is security theater, which does work, but it's the idea and the image of 
that it looks so impenetrable that most people that would want to do something like this see that and they're like, okay, no, not this. But you, know, you say that, but this is also similar kind of to what you brought up a few episodes ago about the death penalty, where it's like, well, yeah. if that's the only thing that gets you to not do it, oh, yeah. then... I mean, if you are someone who is going to shoot up a concert and you're going to be scared off by... Like, are you really going to be scared off by metal detectors? No. No. And not. if you are, you're going to go shoot up the coffee shop down the street. I mean, that the the issue yeah. of... Yeah, tighter security is not the issue. Here. Right. Right. But um, I don't know. It's it's something I think about. I mean, whenever I'm at a concert or a show, I always try to be aware of. Okay, where's the exit? It's okay, so where, sad. And, it, and I'm like, is is that so really is that really my first reaction? It is in a crowded place, and there are a lot of other reasons to well, that personally for me. But the, just the fact that. That I could say something like that, and it's not weird. It's not even like a, oh my gosh, that's crazy. It's like a, yeah, no, yeah, I get it. Well, and taking it back to shootings, we have mentioned this before in the past, but the fact that you grew up with shooter drills, and mm-hmm. I did not. And so, you know, this is one of the things that I, I do think the young people of our our, our world right now you know, our age, yes, but also, you know, I'm thinking like people in high school now yeah. who are experiencing the drills, then also the mass amount of shootings that are happening at the moment. You know, my hope is that things are going to start happening because these people are getting up into oh, yeah. the voting ages and like they're going to make a fucking difference because their lives are completely different, at least from the one I the one I had yeah. growing up the... because I didn't have shooter drills. I had fire yeah. drills and tornado drills. Yeah. And you had such a different experience in high school, even even just six years after me. The power and the fortitude that was shown by the students of Stoneman Douglas after the, the Parkland shooting in Florida I know. Yeah. is forever inspiring. Forever. Because I remember... Oh, I'm so inspired by them. I remember being them. that age and talking about it in school. But the idea of even a walkout, let alone a march on the Capitol. I mean, it wasn't something that would have crossed my mind. I mean, if it was something that was happening, would I have joined in? Maybe. You know, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes. I Because, y'all, 17-year-old Tyler was a shit show. But, Mm -hmm. no, but the, just the fortitude that they have shown has been truly inspiring. It really is. But... So... I'm going to jump back in my case. Yeah, get into your... So at 10.05 p.m., country music singer Jason Aldean is giving the closing performance of the festival. He's doing his last few songs, Mm -hmm. and he is the last person of the show singing to 22,000 fans when gunshots begin to ring out. And at first, these gunshots start out with a few single shots before they started to become fired in just prolonged bursts. Yeah. Because initially, most people in the crowd thought they were fireworks. Yeah. Because it's a festival, they're hearing popping. Not not to try to make this comparison, but when we hear weird sounds outside, we're like, oh, that was a firework, right? Yeah. Because the, the sound they is sound so very similar. similar. And I, I do feel like that is a natural... 
defense mechanism to be like, that was a firework, right? Yep, that mm-hmm. was a firework. And if you're at a concert, especially, it's not even a defense mechanism. It's just like a thought of reality. Yeah. So Megan Kearney, who was a concert goer, was quoted as saying, we heard what sounded like firecrackers going off. And then all of a sudden, we heard what sounded like a machine gun. People started screaming that they were hit. When we started running out, there were probably a couple hundred people on the ground. People kept dropping and were getting shot one foot away from us. People were trying to save their friends. There were gunshots everywhere. Helping meant that we got shot too. I remember waking up in the morning. And like every morning, I generally wake up about an hour before my alarm goes off. And Mm -hmm. I pick up my phone because that's just natural. Yeah. And I saw all the notifications and I just started reading the news articles and I was bawling in my Mm -hmm. bed and just, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, again, we talk about, everything we talk about is so heinous and so horrible, but when it's something that happens in your lifetime and your memory and Mm -hmm. when you can remember that moment happening, it's like a different level. Yeah. Well, this, I very specifically remember... I just cannot believe your reaction. Like, that is a... I I can't even begin to understand how you felt seeing this information, knowing you had literally just been there. We're almost there. Well, when I was there, they were, like, setting up the concert space and stuff. So I was in Seattle back home. I started getting the notifications on my phone, and I was just like, holy shit. Because the first notification I got was... I mean, something like dozens killed in Las Vegas concert shooting or something like that. That wasn't like five people killed or whatever, which is also horrible. But the the first notification I saw was a very high number. And I texted the two friends I went to Vegas with. And I was like, are you are you fucking seeing this? Have you heard the news? And it was it was very surreal because we had just gotten home like it. I feel as if this is the most personal we've ever gotten on this podcast. I think so. And it, it's weird because I both feel like, oh my God, I was almost there. And then I also feel like, am I being one of those people that's like, oh my gosh, there was a shooting in Arizona. I have a friend that lives in Arizona. You know you know how there are those people that like yeah, attach I, themselves to disasters? No, I do. But I think there is a level of separation. And also there's a level of perspective yeah. as to... Because, again, you're telling me this information, and I'm like, you were almost there. I think what gets me most, or why I feel the attachment, because shootings happen all the time, in cities I was in a week ago and in cities I'm in right now. Right. I think that's the thing. I think if I had just been in Vegas, but the fact that we were looking at tickets and looking at that festival is weird. I'm going to jump back in. Mm -hmm. Um, So, during the shooting... A security fence that was around the concert area hindered concert goers Mm. from fleeing the lot. Because, it, you know, the fence was there to keep people from just being able to, like, wander in. Yeah. But it also kept people from being able to escape. And the gunfire continued. There were occasional momentary pauses. And then it would come back. And over the span of about ten minutes... The gunfire ended about 10, 15 p.m. And I don't suggest it, but I've watched um, I was about to videos ask you. of I have people too. who were there. It's scary. 
it's horrifying. Because you can see it's like someone... Because there's a video of the moment that it was starting and people recognized it. Because mm-hmm. someone's just recording Jason Aldean on their phone. Yeah. And then he dives down. You hear the gunshots. And it's just... Eerie is not the right word because it's not strong enough. No. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's just like this sheer moment of terror, even just listening and watching. No, it's it's one that just by proxy. Yeah. I mean, you get that fight or flight. That like instant nausea. Yeah. Where you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. So Denora Marino, who was a dealer at the Ellis Island Casino, and she's at the concert with a friend mm-hmm. was quoted as saying people were getting shot at while we were running and people were on the ground bleeding crying and screaming we just had to keep going there are tents out there and there's no place to hide it's just an open field and in addition to shooting at concert goers the shooter fired eight bullets at a large jet fuel tank that was at the McCarran International Airport, which is about a half mile away. It's yeah. The airport is not far from the Strip. No, at, it's right at there. At this part. When you land at the airport, you, you see, see the, the strip. strip. Yeah. So two of the bullets did strike the interior of the tank. He was trying to shoot at the tank and blow it and up. And blow it up, of course. Um, And one bullet did penetrate it. But the fuel didn't explode because jet fuel is mostly kerosene and it doesn't catch fire when it's struck by a like impact. Oh, I didn't um, know that. No, kerosene, I mean, because it's fuel, but as far as fuel's considered, it's pretty stable. So that's why planes will blow up if they hit the ground with a fuel mm-hmm. with a big fuel tank. But if someone shot a gun on a plane, it's not gonna blow up in the air. Yeah. Because that's not how things work. Yeah. So police officers were initially confused whether the shots were coming from the Mandalay Bay, the nearby Luxor Hotel, or the festival grounds themselves. And there were also multiple false reports of additional shooters at other hotels on the Strip. So they didn't know what the fuck was going on. No. They don't know if... There's shooters in the crowd. If there are snipers in every hotel, they, well, literally, what is going shooters, on? Like, it's such a mystery because mm-hmm. if someone is in literally a single window at a hotel across the street, it's hard to have that moment of like, it's not like you can be on the ground and be like, that's him. No. And you don't have a fucking protractor being like, well, this angle's here and this angle's here. It's from there. It's literally in the moment. There's just bullets going on. So the shooter was a 64-year-old named Stephen Paddock. He's a former auditor and real estate person who he'd been living northeast of Vegas in a retirement community. And his only prior interaction with law enforcement was traffic tickets. So nothing. He was a nobody. He I mean, was... not, not to say nobody. That's <laughs> No, he was your average but, Joe. Yeah, he was. As far as the was law this, was concerned. This old guy who had previously had a job and it got trapped in literally sped. no one who's <laughs> on he's not anyone's radar no he was a high stakes gambler and placed bets at a high enough level to earn some pretty valuable comps and free benefits such as like you know a free room at this casino yeah, yeah, or yeah. a free meal which yes sounds like a lot it's not it's hard not to get. that a lot no it's not hard to get. i mean if you sit at the blackjack table long enough well, they're, also, they're gonna be like oh 
Do you want to stay here longer? You should come back. We'll pay for your room. I mean, I know. It gets... you have someone that's because if you're spending a ton of money at a table and they offer you a free night, that costs them nothing because you can find a hotel easily for like a hundred bucks a night in Vegas. Well, and also, let's be real. It's not like any hotel in Vegas is like. I'm sorry, you're. We're booked out. Our last free hotel room we gave to this guy. Well, because when they're doing the comp hotel rooms, it's not on their busiest weekends. When they, no, exactly. It, that hotel room was going to be empty. But anyway, anyway, regardless, yes, Stephen Paddock gambled a lot, yep. but not to the point of like, oh shit, he's gambling a lot. Is he involved with the mob? Like yeah. he's just an old not dude that. who gambles. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a familiar figure to the casino hosts in Vegas, but. Most of the other high stakes gamblers didn't know him. He mostly played video poker and he was just a, kept to himself and he drank a lot. But you're in Vegas, the drinks are free. So everybody's yeah. drinking a lot. He'd lost a significant amount of money over the, the prior two years, but he'd paid off all of his gambling debts before this and there wasn't any kind of outstanding anything. So before the shooting, Paddock arrived at the Mandalay Bay on September 25th, 2017. So he'd been there so for So about that. six days before. Yeah. He was booked into room 32135, because it's on 32nd floor, yeah. room 135. And it was a complimentary room that mm-hmm. he'd gotten through his gambling. Yeah. Four days after that, he also checked into the room that's directly connected to it with like that weird hotel door. Yeah, the one in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, so you can book both rooms. Yep. He checked into the room next to it, 134. Both of these suites overlooked the site of the concert. Yeah. And it's across Las Vegas Boulevard. I mean, like they overlook it, but at a distance. It's, you know, across the parking lot, across the boulevard, across the other parking lot, into the festival grounds. I mean, it's not, it's not a just across the way. Yeah. So between September 25th and October 1st, he stockpiled an arsenal of weapons and associated equipment and that included 14 AR-15 rifles, all of Holy which- Holy shit, that's so many. Yeah had bump stocks and 12 of which had 100 round magazines, eight AR-10 rifles, a bolt action rifle, and a revolver. So for those of y'all that don't know, a bump stock is a modifier uh, that you can put on a semi-automatic weapon. It's silent, doesn't it? It makes it rapid succession. So most weapons that are legal in the U.S. that are semi-automatic, you have to click the trigger each time to shoot a bullet. Mm-hmm. And so you can only shoot as fast as you can pull the trigger and it can reload. What a bump stock can do is make it almost automatic where you can basically hold down the trigger. And that's why they're trying to make spray. it legal, right? Yeah, bump stocks make weapons more similar to automatic weapons that are outlawed yeah. um, in the U.S. Because if y'all don't know, um, and this is from my understanding, I am not a gun person. I do not like guns. I don't either. I have I shot guns before in Boy Scouts. I know how to shoot. I mean, same. I've also shot guns. I don't. Yeah. I know. But. But basically what makes a weapon a semi-automatic is that when you pull the trigger, it 
reloads itself. Like it puts yeah. another bullet in the cartridge. Yeah. So pistols that you think of that police have that they can like shoot, shoot are considered semi-automatic. But a bump stock makes it essentially to where you can hold down the trigger. Anyway, so he loaded all of these guns into his hotel rooms mm. and basically built God. himself a fucking armory. And often with the help of hotel bellhops, which... God. Yeah. yeah, they have no idea. They're bringing his suitcases up. And his cell phone records also show that he made multiple visits to his home back in Mesquite, so 80 miles away. So he, he, he would was go stalking and this back, place up. He would go and come go back. back. Yeah. And on September 30th, the day before, he placed a do not disturb sign on the doors of both rooms. But before the shooting, he spent most of his time gambling at the Mandalay Bay Casino. Shortly before 10 p.m. on the night of the 1st, hotel security guard Jesus Campos was sent to the 32nd floor to investigate an open door alert. There's alarm going off that... You know, one of the security doors was open and not closing. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go see. Yeah. So he attempts to open a door that would provide immediate access to the floor. So I'm imagining like one of the stairwell doors. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where you would get the immediate access. But he found that it wouldn't open. Oh, shit. So he enters the floor, um, I believe from another door, and discovers that there's an L-shaped bracket screwed into the door and the door frame that's keeping it from opening. So basically, someone screwed a bracket that, like, screwed the door shut, basically. Yeah. Um, he reports the discovery to the dispatch center, and then he hears the sound of, like, rapid drilling coming from room 32135. And so he goes to see what's going on. And at approximately 10.05, he's hit in the right thigh by one of about 35 bullets that Paddock <gasps> fired through the door of his suite. Oh, my so God. So he's, he's going into this room. He's hearing drilling. He's like, what the fuck is going on? And he gets shot through the door. God. After he's hit, he took cover in an alcove in the hallway and immediately informed the hotel by radio and cell phone that he'd been shot. He initially, he's in shock. He thought he was shot by a BB or a pellet gun. He doesn't know it was an actual bullet. Yeah. At the same time this is happening, a maintenance worker by the name of Stephen Shuck gets to the same floor to fix the door that Campos had reported as being barricaded. So maintenance worker shows up to take down the bracket. And Campos, who's been shot, sees Shuck and tells him to take cover because they're being shot at through the door. So Paddock then used a hammer to break two of the windows in both of his suites and began shooting through them at 10.05 p.m. Mm. He ultimately fired more than 1,100 <gasps> rifle oh rounds. Oh, my God. Approximately 500 yards into the festival, or about 450 meters, which is a quarter mile away. Like, it fucking far. Officers eventually spotted multiple flashes of gunfire in the middle of the northern side of the Mandalay Bay, and they responded to the hotel. They were like, oh shit, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. So at 10.12 p.m., which is about seven minutes after the shooting started, two officers on the 31st floor reported the sounds of gunfire on the floor above them. 
and when officers arrived on the 32nd floor at 1017, they encountered Campos, who had been shot, and kind of looked out like, that's Paddock, that's his room. Yeah. And Campos was also, like, he'd been shot, but he was also helping the other hotel guests and everyone evacuate. That's like the, oh, there's a phrase for it and I can't think of it, but it's like the strength that you get even in this type of situation, just like... Sydney, who jumped out the window when she'd been yeah. shot in the leg in your Survivor Just episode. That adrenaline. Yes. And, like, yeah. your body enables you to... Become a fucking superhero. Literally. But, literally become a superhero. Yeah. So, Campos shot in the leg and is literally... He's directing police and helping others evacuate. Yeah. And then he had to be told to get medical attention himself. Like, someone would be like, dude, you've been shot. Literally... Go to the hospital. So between 10.26 and 10.30 p.m., eight additional officers arrived on the 32nd floor, and some of them manually breached the door that Paddock had screwed shut with his bracket. Mm -hmm. The gunfire had stopped at this point, and police, they moved down the hallway, searching and making sure each room was clear. They know gunfire is coming from this floor. Yeah. They have no idea if they it's don't know one guy in one room, multiple, it's multiple people. They have no idea what's going on. They finished evacuating all of the guests. And at 11.20 p.m., they finally breached room 135 with explosives because Paddock had sealed the room. Yeah, and so they had to get in. Yeah. Paddock was found dead on the floor from oh. a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So he'd mm. shot himself after this. On the morning after the shooting... When I hate that. I hate it so much when people who decide to do things like this then take their own lives because they either the reasoning that they were doing it, they had already predetermined it was suicide. But I almost always feel like it's a cop out mm-hmm. where it's like, I've done this thing and I'm kind of done. So I'm going to kill myself and not have to face the consequences. Yeah. And while I Totally understand that there are a lot of other things that add into why someone would take their own lives. But that's the way I look at it. When you choose to do something of this magnitude and then end your life. And then end your life, it's a it's a cop out for you. It's a I don't want to face police or trial or I don't want to face the the consequences of my actions. Yeah. So the morning after the shooting, people are waking up and hearing the news or they heard the news last night and it's daybreak. Yeah. They're realizing the scale of it. The lines to donate blood in Las Vegas stretched for blocks. Wait times were as much as six hours or more. And people were like, okay, okay. cool. Yep. I can stand for six hours to give blood. Yep. And in Las Vegas alone, 800 units of blood were donated to the local blood banks in the days following the shooting. And the American Red Cross reported a 53% increase in blood donation in the two days following the shooting. That's amazing. I love when people come together. <laughs> Me too. And it's it's interesting to look at because a lot of... There was some... I don't want to say controversy. Controversy is too strong of a word. But after this, because I believe 15% of the blood that was donated did wind up going to waste. But to me, that's not an issue. I mean, because a hospital cannot run out of blood. It cannot run out of blood. And so 
just by that, some blood is going to go to waste. You have is there to a, make... like a time amount of where like when a, a bag is donated to when it expires, essentially? So I believe whole blood can last, I think the number is 45 days. And platelets and plasma, however, it can be as short as a week. Mm-hmm. But whole blood, I believe it's 45 days. Mm. But between the time that blood takes to get collected, get tested, and then get distributed to hospitals, you know, obviously if you're, if this incident happens in Vegas, the hospitals and the blood centers in Vegas, the, the travel time and distribution time for the blood is not going to be as long. Right. But yeah. Some of it's going to go to waste. Some of it has to go to waste because the alternative of a hospital being like, oh shit, no, we're out. This person who's having their appendix out, who needs a unit of blood, is going to die from this because there's th- we don't have any. Right. Yeah. I Better would, for I some to go love, to waste than be I would needed. love to have donated blood and to get a postcard back that was like, sorry, it went to waste because we had enough blood. I'd be like, awesome, I did my job then. It's literally no loss to anyone. No, because it doesn't take anything out of me to donate blood. And like, you just have to, like, chill for a bit, eat some cookies, get your blood sugar back yeah. up, and then you go. And, I mean, there are some people that can't donate blood. No, and I mean, there are there a lot are of people sp- that should be able to donate blood. They can't. can't. Yeah, in the um, U.S., they finally changed the laws because it used to be and when i started donating blood this was the rule that if you've had sex with a man since 1977 you can't donate blood ever i remember that and then i think when i was 20 or 21 they changed it to you have to have it has to have been in the last 12 months and i'm still just like are you fucking kidding me it's Are like you literally, you're like, that's me? just like my life. You're like telling me to just be celibate, abstain, abstain for a year. Because it doesn't matter if it's, if you're in a committed relationship with someone. No. So here's the thing that I don't understand. They test all the blood afterward. Yeah. So what's the, if I, I cause I know the whole homosexual thing is they're worried about AIDS. Yeah. Number one, anyone can have AIDS. By the yeah, way, don't have to true. be um, in a same-sex relationship or a same-sex encounter for that. But if they're going to test it anyway, what is the difference? Are they just pissed about it's, wasting their time? No, it's literally on un- the uneducated masses and just the fear of so an HIV stupid. or AIDS outbreak because of that. Because, the, yeah, blood goes through rounds and rounds and yes. rounds of testing since federal law doesn't protect against sexual orientation discrimination. You can have different stuff for gay people, different rules. And it's fucking stupid, stupid because it's literally tested and scrutinized. And a lot of blood gets thrown out because even if the results are questionable i want to say a lot of blood but like if if it's not a certain yes this is good clean blood it gets thrown out out. and that is understandable because you it's not a risk worth taking no and again these are the advantages of having such wide supply chains yeah some blood gets wasted again good yeah but no the the fact that you could be in a same-sex relationship, married to the person, you've been, maybe y'all were virgins until marriage, and Mm -hmm. you've only been with each other, and it's been 15 years. Oh, no, sorry. Nope, y'all had sex on Tuesday. No. It's fucking garbage. Fuck that shit. 
So in addition to the arsenal of weaponry that was found, there was also a note that calculated how to attack the crowd based on trajectory and distance that was found. So like he did the math and shit. He had the protractor and calculated the angle and how to best shoot as many people as necessary. And authorities concluded that Paddock had no connections with any terrorist group such as ISIS, and his planned attack was carried out without any accomplices. He was truly the, like, lone wolf shooter. Yeah, it was just him. So this deadly shooting horrified the country, Mm -hmm. and it sparked debate over gun control legislation once again, which seems to happen after every mass shooting it that does. happens every few months it does. and yet not much is done but yeah so gun control advocates claimed that paddock's use of bump stocks led to the increased number of casualties because instead of having to just shoot shoot he was able to basically mow down people and in response president trump actually said that he was open to banning bump, bump stocks, stocks. Yeah. But he wanted to learn more about them first. And in the year following the shooting, so this was from October of 2018, 11 states had banned bump stocks and more than a dozen additional states and cities were considering bans. But as a whole, still legal. God, that makes me so mad. So 58 people were shot to death at the music festival and Paddock's suicide was the only death at the Mandalay Bay. Yeah, 58 people. The fatalities included 36 women and 22 men. The oldest person was 67, and the youngest person was 20. So the Clark County Coroner's Office determined that all 58 victims died as a result of gunshot wounds. 31 of the victims were pronounced dead at the scene, and the rest were pronounced dead in hospitals. An additional 851 people were injured, 422 of them from gunshot wounds. So about half of those injured is 851 people were injured of this, 422 of them from gunshot wounds, the rest of them from injuries trying to escape. So this incident is the deadliest mass shooting committed by an individual in the U.S. Exceeded the death toll of the previous highest one, the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting at Pulse nightclub. Yeah. Where 49 people were shot and killed. A year it only, to it top was that. One year. One year. Yeah. That's yep. so fucked up. So to this day, Stephen Paddock's motive remains unknown. Nobody well, knows I mean, why he did it. Well, and he I remember he he didn't leave anything. He killed himself. Even his partner at the time was like, I don't yeah. know anything. Yeah, his and I I didn't mention it in the in my case, but he had a life partner at the time, and she had no idea about this. She had no idea what was going on. His brother was like, "Holy shit, what the fuck?" Like that. That's not my brother. That that couldn't have been. My brother's this old dude who drinks a bit too much and likes to gamble. He's Which not a guy who is shoots like up a... Nothing. I mean, that's everyone's... Like, everyone has an old uncle who drinks a little bit and gambles. But yeah, it was just so unsuspected. One note to end it on that 
is awful. I'm just going to put it out just there. It's put a it shitty out there. note. Several people that were at the shooting in Las Vegas were also present in another mass shooting in November of 2018 at the Borderline Bar and Grill in no. Thousand Oaks, California. Oh, no one should have to experience this twice. So it was stated that the number of Las Vegas survivors at the bar may have been as high as 60. That's crazy. It was a country bar in Thousand Oaks. Thousand Oaks is not far from Vegas. It's in California. No, it's not. And I hmm. believe they were having a country night or something special. I think they special. were. Yeah. And it was confirmed that a survivor from the massacre in Vegas did die in the shooting in Thousand Oaks. So regardless of any personal connections I may have with it, it's so fucking heartbreaking. And all of it is so meaningless. Like all these people were just literally going to a concert to see to have a good night. their favorite artist, have a good night, go out with friends, hang out. And some of them lost their best friend, their partner. Some of them watched people die in their arms. Some people got shot themselves. I mean, it, it's well, fucking meaningless. Even for those who were lucky enough to not be shot, think of how they felt knowing that they were there. And... You know, to add a weird reference, but just because I thought of it, and sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't read these, but when it comes to the Mr. Mercedes book by Stephen King, this is exactly what that was about. It was about someone taking the opportunity of a concert to kill a lot of people. It was a room with a lot of people in it. Which, weird connection, but if y'all didn't know, there's a TV series over the Mr. Mercedes book. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really good. It is. Uh, We watched it over Christmas, what, last year? It was last year, yeah. Was it? Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Um, And real good. But the reason in the TV show, sorry for the spoiler alert, but that the final scenes didn't happen at a concert was because of the Ariana Grande concert. Where did it happen in the TV show again? I don't um, remember. It was like an arts festival or something. Yes, it was. It was an arts festival. But in the book, it's a concert. And that's just this like weird fucking eerie like connection. But yeah, it was an art. Well, I think we've, I think this murder, not so many has been big enough, enough, long Mm -hmm. enough. Well, there you have it. That's a murder not so many. Yes. So if you're like, ooh, this is the kind of stuff I am missing out on by not checking out Patreon, yep. head over, check it out. Again, one of the one of our, our favorite murder minis we've ever done. Two very big cases. It also is a little bit longer than a lot of our murder minis. Most of them are closer to like the 30 to 45 minute mark, I think. Yeah, yeah. But again, with that episode, with those cases being so huge, I was like, yeah, no, we full on, yes, y'all need to hear this. And if you enjoyed it, if you liked hearing our murder mini and want to hear more, check out our Patreon. But also make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love hearing what y'all have to say and hearing from you. And while you're at it, Be sure to check us out on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Go and look and find all of the content for our regular episodes, all of the wines that we do. And like Tyler was saying, if you want more murder minis like this, then hop on over to Patreon. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off.
XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.